Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. A common question the NCBC receives from nursing students and medical students is, what should I do when I'm instructed by a superior to do something that violates my conscience and or my religious beliefs? In fact, this very question with regard to providing medications for so-called gender transitioning prompted this podcast. In the first of a two-part interview addressing the what should I do question, I'm happy to welcome two guests to the show. The first is Elizabeth Nekrevich, a nursing student from Vermont, and the person who posed the podcast prompting question. The second is Diana Kret, a PhD nurse educator and ethicist with the NCBC. Diane will address the what should I do question from the perspective of the nurse educator. Elizabeth and Diane, welcome to Bioethics on Air. Hello, it's great to be here. Hello, Joe. Thank you for inviting us. Glad to have both of you with us today. All right, so as you're both new guests on our podcast, and our our listeners know uh, that we do this, I'd like to ask you a bit about your background, specifically your education and work experience. So Elizabeth, a bit about your background. So I got my first degree from University of Vermont in exercise science. Um, While I was doing that, I worked at a gym and I actually had an internship in exercise physiology. But then once I graduated, I found out that in Vermont, I couldn't find a job as an exercise physiologist. And then the next year, COVID happened, which made it even harder. So um, upon graduating, I worked as a medical assistant. And I decided that I wanted more autonomy and to be able to do more. I thought a lot about going to med school or PA school. But um, then I decided to go to nursing school. And I enrolled in an accelerated program and at Norwich University, and I'll be done in December. Wow, very good. Diane, a little background. Congratulations, Elizabeth. That's a wonderful journey. I love second-degree nursing students. You're so motivated. So thank you for being here on the podcast with Jose Lott and I. Uh, my name is Diane Eckert, and I um, have been a nurse since 1986, uh, and so there's been a lot of changes in healthcare and in conscience protections in general, right? So I became a nurse educator about 12 years ago. I went back to school and got a PhD in Catholic healthcare ethics because of all the changes that had been taking place in the last 36 years that affected our clinical practice um, in nursing. I spent most of my life working in uh, adult critical care and pediatric and neonatal critical care, about 10 years in each of those subspecialty areas. So probably the largest amount of changes that have occurred in our nursing practice have dealt with issues at the beginning of life and issues at the end of life. And most recently, the issues with conscience protections, with uh, um, new transgender ideology and those implications in clinical practice. So it's it's an honor to be here. Diane, where are you teaching now? So I currently teach at Ave Maria University in Florida. I began teaching um, at a Catholic university about a year ago. I've worked at the NCBC for 
six or seven years, I'm starting to lose track of time. And uh, I have been teaching in a, in a, in a large secular healthcare education um, university for, for the nine to 10 years previous to moving to Ave Maria. Yeah. And that was Jefferson here in Philadelphia, correct? It was. Ah, very good. All right. Well, again, welcome both of you. And I look forward to our conversation today. So Elizabeth, as I alluded to in the introduction, um, you sent us an email and that email is what uh, prompted this podcast today. So back on May 2nd, you sent us an email stating the following. This is a quote. I'm a nursing student and I have a question that I think would be a great topic for a podcast. As nurses, we dispense many medications, including medications for people who are so-called transitioning to a different gender than their biological sex. This is something I feel very uncomfortable cooperating in, but I would probably get in a lot of trouble if I refused to give a patient medication to help him or her transition genders, unquote. So Elizabeth, can you tell us a bit about your nursing school experience with regard to complicated questions of conscience. I know Diane mentioned, you know, beginning of life, um, usually it's abortion question and and questions of contraception, but now we're getting into transitioning things, uh, you know, transitioning gender issues. What are you taught in the classroom and what are you expected to do in clinical situations as a nursing student today? So, Conscience protection is something that has never been addressed in my whole nursing school career, I guess you could call it, and I'm almost done, and that's something that they have not mentioned at all, and the issue of abortion, I feel like, is the only issue that I really hear it talked about in terms of conscience protection, and that's something we barely even talked about. Um, in terms of gender transitioning, in one of my classes, we spent a whole entire class talking about gender transitioning and how you should start asking children what their pronouns are when they're about five years old. And in clinical, we're we're expected to give whatever meds we're assigned to give to the patient. Um, So the situation I ran into is um, this was when I was in my psych clinical and um, our psych clinical is a little bit different than all of our other clinicals in psych. We actually weren't allowed to give meds ourselves, but um, I, basically helped my nurse give meds to this patient. And it was a patient who, um, it was a teenage boy who was transitioning to become a quote unquote female, basically. And he was taking medications to increase estrogen estrogen production and um, actually spironolactone, which is a potassium sparing diuretic, which causes um, feminization in men and masculinization in women. And it wasn't really something I realized until like the next day. I was like, oh, I, I wonder if that's something that I'm allowed to cooperate with. And another thing that kind of pricked my conscience is this boy was also suicidal. So I felt that giving someone who is already very psychologically distressed hormones that are not the hormones that are supposed to be in their body I feel like that could that could make them even worse um 
just thinking about all of the fluctuations in hormones that women go through and how that affects their mental health. If you give those hormones to a man, that that would make their mental state potentially even more unstable. And that's really the only case of medication administration that I came across in nursing school so far that kind of pricked my conscience. I have actually never had to give contraception drugs um, during my clinical. Part of that is because most of my clinical experiences have been on floors with mostly older patients. But um, yeah, that kind of sums up what I've come across in clinical. I came across issues when I was working as a medical assistant um, as well. But those are those are separate from what I have in nursing school. Right. So it sounds as if your nursing education, what you're expected to do, is essentially kind of the 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 line of of certain people in the medical field who who say that the the role of a healthcare professional is to essentially give the patient whatever the patient wants. That that yes. sounds as if that's what you were taught, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly in your training. Yes. We're taught to advocate for a patient. And if there's something like, if, for example, if the doctor orders something that the patient should not have, which I've, I've come across that with uh, medications that there isn't really an ethical implication. For example, someone with a feeding tube is ordered a medication that can't be crushed and then you have to fix that. But if they're um, in the case of a medication that the patient or the doctors think the patient needs um, when morally it might not be the right choice. As nurses, we're kind of just expected to um, to give the medication. So have you expressed any conscience concerns to instructors or, or clinical managers or anything else? And I'm thinking specifically in this, this case of providing medications for this teenage boy who is so-called transitioning. Have you expressed your concerns? And if so, what has been the reaction that you've received? I have not, uh, partially because I'm almost done with my school program and um, the rest of my um, nursing program in the clinical setting is likely going to be in the ICU and in critical care, uh, where I don't expect I'm going to have to be giving meds for transitioning or contraception. And this 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 was kind of an issue that I didn't think about really until after the fact that I had the patient who was transitioning. Um, if it if something comes up again, I hope I will have the courage to say something. But um, it is hard in in nursing school because um, I've put so much work into school and I don't want to get in trouble because I'm almost done. Uh, something I do plan on that I've decided is when I get my first job as a nurse, I'm going to say I will not be floated to assist with abortions. I don't feel comfortable doing this or this or this. I want to set my expectations before I'm even hired so that I don't have to do anything that goes against my conscience. Yeah. And actually, we're going to talk about some of that stuff a little bit later on. So it's a, a nice uh, lead into that. But uh, before going there, I'd like to, to hear from Diane. So Diane, you heard what Elizabeth just said. And I was wondering if you could comment on it. And I, a couple of questions here to, to maybe prompt that. So you're a nurse educator. So you're looking at this you know, from the other end of the spectrum. So Diane, how do you educate your nursing students on subjects that you know are going to be controversial? I mean, abortion, contraception transitioning, some of the end of life stuff. 
And do you approach things differently now that you're teaching at a Catholic institution, Ave Maria, than you did while you were teaching in a secular institution? So Joseph, thank you for the question. And Elizabeth, I think this highlights one of the education initiatives with the boards of nursing that was that was forwarded to all of us educators, I would say about five or six years ago, where higher education for nursing strongly recommended that ethics be implemented across the nurse undergraduate nursing curriculum. And in fact, that ethics was implemented across all health science curriculums throughout the country. Uh, when I worked at Jefferson, it's a health science um, college. So only our students were getting degrees in nursing, medicine, pharmacy, PTOT, et cetera, and even like biological research. So we had an initiative in, in light of that request to implement ethics across the entire nursing curriculum. And we did so, um, and it was a, a great experience that I was able to help implement that across the curriculum in Philadelphia. And, and what that meant was that we began teaching according to the Nursing Code of Ethics um, and application of the Nursing Code of Ethics in a, in a broad kind of a way, teaching about informed consent, patient rights, and our obligation as nurses to provide, um, maintain adherence to informed consent processes to make sure that patients understood risks and benefits of any intervention, including pharmacological intervention. And, and during that time, I also had the privilege of um, writing an article with Ashley Fernandez, who's a pediatrician in, in the state of Ohio, what that means in a hierarchical power imbalance type of work environment. And we all know that healthcare has a hierarchy with um, nurses and doctors where doctors write orders and then nurses are expected to carry out those orders. Um, nursing is in a position of being an advocate for our patients. And we should be advocating for our patients in every medication that we administer and every intervention that we engage with the patient um, in. In that regard, it's part of our job to be educators to the patient so that we ensure that they understand risks and benefits of each and every medication that they provide. We do this in our patient education um, in, in the clinical setting. Um, when, you, when you let me know about the medication that you are asked to administer for the adolescent patient who is um, transitioning from male to female spironolactolone, we give this medication to women and men for an entry-level antihypertension medication or as a diuretic. There's other medications that we're asked to administer for transitioning, such as testosterone for women who are wanting to transition to male, and then administration of estrogen in, in males who are wishing to transition to female. All of those medications, including the diuretic that you mentioned, have adverse effects. And so as a nurse, we can educate the patient regarding those adverse effects, um, which include electrolyte imbalances, right? And the importance yeah. of checking for electrolyte um, levels in a basic metabolic panel. Uh, we're so busy in the hospital that when we administer those medications, 
do we do a great job in making sure that patients understand those risks and benefits even before the patient has been prescribed those medications from the physician? And that's another loaded question about informed consent that isn't always completely provided for patients. But as a nurse, we're charged with advocacy for those patients. So I think I got a little off topic, but um, as an advocate in the role of the American Nurse Association for Nurses, we are called to do that. And I wanted to read to everyone an announcement in 2018 that the American Nursing Association responded to human health and, serv- human health and services for the U.S. government. Um, there was a new announcement of a conscience and religious freedom protocol at that time. Uh, and I want to read to you a quote unquote uh, from Sharon McLendon, who said, the American Nurses Association Code of Ethics for Nurses with interpretive statement states that a nurse has a duty to care. It also states a nurse is justified in refusing to participate in particular decisions or actions that are morally objectionable so long as it is a conscience-based objection and not one based upon personal preference, prejudice, or bias, convenience, or arbitrariness. Nurses are obliged to provide for patient safety, to avoid patient abandonment, and to withdraw only when assured that nursing care is available to the patient by another means. Nurses who decide not to participate on the grounds of conscious objection must communicate this decision in a timely and appropriate manner in advance and in in time for alternative arrangements to be made for patient care. Nurses should not be discriminated against by employers for exercising a conscience-based refusal. So this is a precarious situation for us as nurses. And as a nursing student, you're even in more of a precarious situation because of that hierarchical power imbalance that's just not between you and the physician or the administration of the hospital, but between you, the nurse who's training you, the nursing educator that's training you, and the very likelihood of fear that's incurred as being a nursing student that someone could fail you out of the program if you refuse to do something that you're asked to do. Yes. So we see a lot of moral distress in nursing students uh, in regard to this hierarchical power imbalance. I am hoping that you have had some ethics training in your nursing program with inclusion of professional practice standards and um, guidance toward referencing the American Nurses Association Code of Ethics. Um, And has that occurred for you in your education? So I have not had to take ethics as part of my nursing education because when I got my first degree, I took ethics uh, about five years ago and they said that they would take that and that I didn't have to take ethics again. Um, Ethics is something that gets mentioned in my courses, but um, I... I haven't taken one of the healthcare ethics classes at the university that I'm attending, so I'm not 100% sure what they teach. And actually, a lot of people in my program who haven't taken ethics before, they don't even take the healthcare ethics classes because 
the requirement of the school is that you just take an ethics course. So about half the students actually took environmental ethics because the professor was easier. Um, yes, ethics is something that gets mentioned, um, but it's not really something that I feel like we talk about a lot. Um, the ethics of informed consent, we do we do talk a lot about informed consent, but the main area that we focused on with informed consent has been informed consent for surgical procedures um, and when you need to get assigned informed consent and when you don't. Um, and of course, there is a lot of education on treat on educating about medications. But in clinical practice, I've seen that basically what happens is some nurses just give the patient the meds. Some nurses say, oh, this is for this, this is for this. They don't go over side effects. And um, pretty much every medication that I've given, um, it has not been the first time they've received it. And I'll see documented in the computer that oh, the patient has had the first dose education. But then sometimes I don't see documented in the computer that the patient ever had the first dose um, education. So I think that in nursing, especially when there's understaffing involved and some patients are very, oh, I'll just take whatever you tell me to take. Um, they don't ask questions about their medication. I think that um, medication side effects are definitely something that we need to work on educating our patients about um, as a profession. Yeah. I'd like to jump in if I could and, and pick up on the, Diane, you mentioned the word advocacy, and I think Elizabeth, you mentioned it as well too. And I'm wondering what does advocacy mean, particularly for a nursing student? Because I, I could I could see that word having a couple of different meanings. And, and the one that I would say is that, you know, the patient or, you know, for, you know, in our consultations here at the NCBC, the a patient's power of attorney, but, you know, here we're talking about nurses. A an advocate is the one who should be looking out for the best interests widely understood of the patient. And it seems to me um, that advocate could also be understood, and I'm sure there's probably people who do, it can be understood as an advocate of a patient is doing whatever the patient wants. Yeah. You know, going back to that, going back to that understanding. So I, I guess, you know, just maybe both of you, if, if you have any comments on that, um, what is, how are we understanding the word advocacy or how are you understanding the word advocacy when you're talking about a nurse's advocacy of her or his patient? Elizabeth, well, if you don't mind, could I just jump in really quick? Because I want to, this yeah. leads into a recommendation that I make for all my nursing students for the last Please. 20 years, even when I just mentored students in the clinical setting. So it's really important for um, all nurses and all professionals, all healthcare professionals, to be very familiar with their professional code of ethics. And for nursing and for nursing students, I was recommended back in 1983 to 84 and 85 in school to print up the code of nursing ethics for my profession. And it's a fluid document that changes. We are all responsible as professor, professionals with a licensure in a health science degree to be familiar with our 
professional code of ethics. And we are expected legally to adhere to our code of ethics to maintain our licensure. Um, it's part of being a professional nurse. And nurses are one of the most trusted professions in healthcare and in our communities. So that's number one. When there's any questions regarding to your ethical practice in nursing, it's important for you to be familiar with, and you should print the ANA code of ethics. And we used to tell students, carry it around with you and put it in your nursing bag because it's not a document that you can memorize. It's supposed to be meant as a document that you utilize and reference in your everyday practice and care. That's number one. Number two is that we have access as Catholic nurses to um, the ethical and religious directives for healthcare hospitals. That I recommend for all nurse, Catholic nurses to have a copy of and to print and to be able to understand what our Catholic faith in care and healthcare um, entails. And in 1986, when I graduated from nursing school, the two documents adhered to one another almost exclusively. Today, they're starting to widen the gap of application. So my number one recommendation to Joe's question when asked, what does advocacy in nursing truly mean? So the document that I would reference is our code of ethics. And if you take a look of advocacy in nursing, and then I would put according to the ANA, we, we get a recommendation. So the American Nurse um, Association believes that advocacy is a pillar of nursing and nurses instinctively advocate for their patient in their workplaces and in their communities. But legislative and political advocacy is no less important to advancing the profession and patient care. So this is where things start to get really sticky because it used to be good enough that we adhered to our nursing code of ethics and it used to be good enough that we advocated for our patients and maintain safety, dignity, and integrity of the patient. We're increasingly being instructed by our nursing legislative organizations that advocacy for a patient and patient rights mean that patients have the ultimate say in the trajectory of their health care. And this didn't always be the case. Do we want to have shared decision-making and patient family-centered care? Absolutely. Do we want to avoid hierarchical power imbalances between physicians, nurses, and patients? Absolutely. Patients and families should be integrated into the dialogue with their care. However, the pendulum swinging to where now is it appropriate for patients to tell us exactly what they should and should not have. And I think we saw the adverse safety effects in that regard with patients who are wealthy, who have power and control to tell healthcare providers what medications they want to be on and how much medication they want to be on in regard to um, sleeping medication, pain medication, um, with some of our celebrities that then cause the death of those celebrities. So we have to be very careful. What does advocacy mean? Does that mean we, without bias, do whatever the patient tells us to do? Well, that could be neglect, right? It could be a neglect for the human person and the dignity of that human person. And then 
be an, a vehicle of extreme moral distress for us. And it's one of the reasons why nursing leaves the profession in, in exponential numbers because of those feelings of moral distress. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a good place to start with our advocacy. And in my practice and in the practice of my nursing students, I always recommend take the safety route because our administration of medication to patients, if it causes a decline in patient health and status and potentially could cause death, we are responsible for administering a medication that causes that potential damage to our patient, regardless if the doctor prescribes it or not. So Mm -hmm. we have a right and an obligation to our patient to question questionable orders that we fear could harm a patient. And I've done that many times in my healthcare profession practice. And I encourage my students to be able to critically think through the medications that they administer and not just blindly give anything that's ordered. Mm-hmm. An example that's an extreme example from a perspective of an end of life issue was um, I was once many, many years ago, decades ago by now, asked to bump up uh, morphine infusion on a patient who is imminently dying, whose respiratory rate was exceedingly low. And the physician asked me to increase this morphine dose from five to 10 milligrams per hour uh, on a patient whose blood pressure was extremely low uh, and the patient was, was dying. Um, and his quote unquote to me was, the family's tired of waiting. They're from California and they wanna make funeral arrangements. Pump, bump that drip up to 10 milligrams an hour. It was before I started with my ethics education. It was long after I had forgotten about that ANA code of ethics that I was told to put into my nursing bag decades before. And I stood there and said, no, I will not bump up the drip. And I was asked by a physician if I was being subordinate, insubordinate. And I said, if that's what you want to call it, yes, but I will not increase the drip to expedite the patient's death. He stormed out of my room and complained to the nurse's station, who was I and who did I think I was? So this is what we call hierarchical power imbalance, right? I refused to follow an an order that was against my conscience. And I didn't really have words to say at the time. And then I was asked to, um, you know, come before the ethics committee. And that's another form of fear because it felt like I was in trouble. Mm-hmm. for following my conscience. So that's an extreme example. But we have to know and understand the medications that we administer. And we have to know and understand the potential harms that it could cause for a patient. And the intention to give a medication to a patient that is potentially lethal or harmful for the patient is something that we should advocate for. So I teach my students um, knowledge of their rights for conscience their knowledge of rights and how to interact with this hierarchical power imbalance. And you utilize your words of the American Nurse Association. uh, And I'm advocating for my patient. It's against the law in the state to do X, Y, Z. And just because something's against or not against the law doesn't mean that it's ethical, right? So we know that there's a distinct difference between that. But if it's unethical and it's illegal, then we could lose our nursing license for it. And we could actually be indicted for manslaughter for 
administering a medication that's lethal. Mm-hmm. So that's an extreme example. But I think that your question is well warranted in the administration of medications for patients that are potentially harmful when the patient doesn't fully understand about the harms and the benefits of the medications. And it's our nursing um, responsibility through the American Nurse Association's Code of Ethics and advocacy rules that we advocate for the patient in understanding those risks of harms and benefits. Yeah. Wow, Elizabeth, there's a lot there. The, <laughs> Diane's a lot of good stuff that Diane just said. Um, respond to that or or the question of what advocacy means. So what I believe an advocate to be is someone who fights for what is best for the patient. And oftentimes what is best for the patient is not the same as what the patient wants. Because there there's a reason that... Um, as nurses, we educate our patients because a lot of the time our patients don't understand the full picture. Um, so we need to be there not not to tell them what's best for them, but to, through communicating with them, decide on a plan that the patient agrees with at, by using our nursing knowledge and cooperating with other members of the healthcare team as to what is best for the patient. And then as advocates, we help that to be done. Um, Because, for example, other members of the healthcare team, such as doctors, they have so many patients, they don't always spend a lot of time with the patients. And... um, as advocates, we need to be there to communicate, to help facilitate communication between the patients and the doctors. And sometimes there are issues that come up, um, especially as Diane, what you mentioned, of the patient who the doctor basically wanted the morphine uh, titrated up so that the patient would die. And I'm assuming that this patient wasn't verbal and wasn't able to advocate for himself. So as nurses, we need to be there to advocate for the patient when he or she can't communicate for him or herself. And um, yeah, you you really brought up a, a lot of really good points. And um, my goal as as a nurse is really to um, use my knowledge, use the patient's knowledge, use the knowledge of everyone in the healthcare team to make sure that um, there is a plan made that is good for the patient, that the patient agrees with, and um, just that everyone on the healthcare team can cooperate together to do um, what is truly best for the patient. I think you did a really nice job giving us an overview of how can we help a patient coordinate their views of what they want for themselves, which is that patient autonomy piece, but not have the patient autonomously decide in a, in a silo that the healthcare team is there as a supportive entity to help the patient through their vulnerability, through their mm-hmm. suffering um, towards an end that 
meets the patient's expectations, that embraces their dignity as a human person, and gets them there through safe interventions. Um, and, and that's the role of, of nursing, mm -hmm. is to be that advocacy to help that patient through that journey of discovery in a phase of their life that they were not expecting or that they didn't necessarily have previous knowledge of. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's, it's that traveling with a healthcare team that helps them through all of those difficulties. So you said that very well. And another thing I want to bring up too, with regards to the whole um, gender transitioning question is it may be different in Catholic hospitals or in other parts of the country, but um, in secular hospitals in Vermont, which is a very um, non very secular, state. secular yes. liberal state, it seems that whenever a patient decides that he or she wants to transition genders, that automatically everyone on the healthcare team says, oh, if they want that, then that must be the best thing to do. And I feel like no one really sits down with a patient and talks to them about, um, is this really what you want? And is this really what is going to be best for you? It's just automatically assumed that, oh, if you want to transition genders, then you should do that. And that will make you happier. There um, just aren't a lot of members on the healthcare team who seem to want to really dig deep and get into why do you feel the need to transition? And um, is this really what you want? And is this really what is going to be best for you? Yeah, Elizabeth, I'm glad you brought that up because because I wanted to go down that road, uh, and I'm glad you you blazed that trail for us. Because you know, going back to the question of advocacy, you're right. At least what we hear publicly now behind the scenes, it's I think it's a little bit different. But what we see publicly is, as you said, if a if a person, including a child or an adolescent, yeah. says, you know, I want to transition my my gender. Uh, or so-called transition my gender, the medical community is is ready, willing, and able to bend over backwards to have mm -hmm. that happen, and it's it's actually celebrated. And you see it in, you know, the the practice standards for various professional medical organizations that this is what you're supposed to do. But I'm there's also a lot of physicians, and I'm going to guess nurses as well too, who are really asking questions. And I'm I'm thinking of a of a physician who is. Uh, I know him very well, uh, will remain nameless. But his thing is when patients come in to do this, he sits down with them and asks them the questions that you're asking. And now this is from a physician's perspective. So bringing back the power dynamic that Diane spoke about, um, it's, it's a different place here. But he asks these teenagers, oftentimes their parents are in the, you know, they're in the examining room with them. And he asks them, he says, you know, do you realize exactly what you're getting into? Mm -hmm. Do you recognize what these medications are going to do? Do you recognize the long-term effects of this? Do you recognize that you're never going to have children if you go down this road? And what he has said is that these children, these adolescents, they look at them and the parents look at them like, you know, kind of bug-eyed and they've never, no one's ever brought any of this stuff up to them and they've never even thought about it before. And so this, you know, it, it brings up the, you know, Elizabeth, what you were just talking about in terms of what's the role of the medical profession as a whole, but in this particular case, what's the role of a nurse, particularly with that power dynamic um, going on? 
and it, it's a really, really touchy issue. Um, but my, you know, to stand up and ask these questions of patients, my, you know, my hat is off to you and, and to other nurses who are doing this. Mm-hmm. I, I think that part of the answer is secular societies of opinion or knowledge based on hormones as kind of an innocuous kind of safe type of casual administration. And we know from all of the contraception education, evidence-based practice, that the administration of estrogen and progesterone hormones for contraception that has been portrayed as safe for women to take have potentially dire consequences including deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolisms. And when a young girl is prescribed contraception because they want to be on contraception at a young age, I always tell my nursing students, take out that interior long side effect page that you have to get a microscope to read <laughs> when yeah, you, really. before you go on the pill and see what the side effects are. And so the education in response to transgender transitioning medication administration is also one that is minimalized in the portrayal of side effects of the medication. I once had a patient, um, more of a work colleague who had transitioned from male to female uh, and was not aware that the female hormones that they took daily for many years was perhaps the culprit that landed them in ICU with pulmonary embolisms multiple times. Mm -hmm. And to me, as a provider of care, I found that disturbing that a patient could actually be hospitalized in an ICU with life-threatening pulmonary embolisms and not be told that the root cause of those pulmonary embolisms and the risk to their life was from the very medications that they were administering for themselves with their mm-hmm. transitioning medication regime. You know, there's not, there's not a minimal risk even for women to transition taking testosterone. There's an increased risk for myocardial infarction uh, hypercholesterolemia, uh, like high cholesterol levels, um, and and risks of of those type of disease, chronic disease progressions. And you're right; those types of lifelong hormone replacement therapy are not discussed. And as a nurse, it is our role of advocacy to not only um, let people understand and know that, but to show them the evidence-based practice that is behind yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Elizabeth, any comments? Um, going off of that, I feel that in, in school, we, um, the, these hormones aren't really something we focus on using for gender transitioning, but we do learn about these hormones as birth control. And we do learn about the side effects, but, it kind of the way it's taught is, yeah, there are these side effects, but it's worth it to not get pregnant. And um, 
there is not much focus on non-hormonal, non-barrier methods of birth control. And the types of, I guess you would call natural family planning that we learn about in school, it's very brief and it's taught that it's really not very effective. And um, through my own learning for my own health, I have looked into other methods of learning about my fertility, um, such as the Creighton model. And that's something that was never mentioned in nursing school. And basically the methods of, I guess you could call it birth control that are not hormonal and um, non-barrier that we learn about, they're, they're very outdated methods. And so it's almost taught that um, the only way to not get pregnant is to either take these hormonal things or to use barrier methods that are not super effective. And so it just, it kind of leaves everyone thinking that, oh, well, if my patient wants to be sexually active and not get pregnant, then they have to take these hormonal medications and, um, and therefore the, the side effects don't really matter because the most important thing is to not get pregnant is kind of, um, I feel like the culture that we live in. And that same, um, view would be in most probability applied to transitioning. Yeah. Um, surgeries and hormones, because the most important thing is for the patient to achieve what their end goal is. Yes. But I think everyone would agree that a potential lethal effect of the life being ended of the individual might not be um, something that everyone would want. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, all right. So as we uh, as we wrap up part one of this interview, because we'll, this is this will be a two part interview, Diana, I was wondering if we can if just go back, put on your nursing educator hat for a second. I'm wondering, have you in your years of teaching, have you heard concerns similar to Elizabeth's from nursing students? And if so, and you've kind of talked about this a little bit, but but how have you responded to these questions either in the classroom or in a clinical situation? And again, has has your approach changed at all because you're now working at Ave Maria versus a secular system? And I, I realized that I didn't adequately answer that pre- question when you previously asked it. And I <laughs> That's think why I that, came back to it. <laughs> I, I, I've had the privilege of teaching many courses and Jefferson is a fantastic place as a nurse to work. and. Um, we were able in our pharmacological uh, classes, we used to teach three pharma- pharmacy courses to our nurses. Um, we used to be able to get into in-depth conversations about risks and benefits. And one of our class modules was on reproductive health and medications. And so um, in a secular institution, we could talk about those risks and harms and be- benefits of those medications. Um, we have recently transitioned to one pharmacology course, and I did not teach in that course. So the ability for me to highlight reproductive meds is probably not high on the priority of medications in a one course pharmacy course. We're going to focus on cardiac meds, respiratory meds, diabetes meds, et cetera. Um, 
So I always felt like in a secular institution, teaching harms and benefits and side effects of medications spoke volumes in being able to provide pop-out red flag moments for students. Now we try to do that in a clinical setting uh, if those medications are prescribed, um, which like you said, in an acute care hospital setting, they're not usually prescribed or given because we have bigger issues at hand. Uh, so yes, the limited information that we can provide in secular nursing education is decreasing just by the nature that we're not teaching three pharmacy courses anymore. The question about how do I teach in a Catholic institution versus a secular institution is that I can discuss Catholic moral teaching at a Catholic university. And I actually teach the Catholic bioethics course across the, the, the university as well. So we can get into these issues in a much more in-depth um, way. And when we talk about reproductive technologies, we can certainly uh, reference the Crichton method and not talk about the outdated um, old-fashioned 1970 natural family planning methods because evidence-based practice has progressed that the secular world either refuses to look at or they're not aware of. And I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and say that they're not aware. And so as a Catholic nurse, we can educate others of this intensive, beautiful way for people to avoid pregnancy and marriage that provides optimal health. And most interesting, there in the last couple of years, there have been uh, books written on uh, the pill and contraception from uh, ascribed atheists who are neurocognitive psychiatrists and neurocognitive PhD prepared individuals who speak about the adverse effects of these hormonal contraceptions on women's brains and relationships. Oh, and connections with spouse. They even impede upon our relational interactions with those that we love hormonally. Right. Mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise. Right. Um, so I think we are making progress. And I think as a role as a Catholic nurse, it's exciting that we can reference secular resources along with our evidence-based practice Catholic resources to educate those who are not aware of these reproductive harms and the benefits that we can use by utilizing other methods. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answers your, your question, Joe, more comprehensively. Yes, it does. This concludes part one of my interview with Elizabeth Nekrevich and Diana Kret. In part two, Elizabeth and Diane discuss practical things nurses can do to head off and hopefully avoid cooperation in morally problematic medical interventions. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J-Z-A-L-O-T, at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcast are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the Donate button. Thank you for listening and may God's peace be with you.